We're in Nehemiah 4 and 5. Where we were last week is we were coming into chapter 4 to lay out the scene, okay, the situation. For those of you who, when you're studying, you're trying to understand the text clearly, well, what you need to do is make sure we back up and get the background, understand the story, understand the context. And so what you ha- have, and I don't mean to be redundant and boring, but it's important for us to fix this in our mind, that in the Old Testament era, <coughs> there was a period of time when the nation of Israel had grown together as the 12 tribes under David, Saul, and Solomon, but then they split after that. And they had division between their 12 tribes, and two of them stayed loyal to the household of David. The other 10, they went off and they served under other kings. In time, those nations were taken away. They were spanked by God via the use of other countries. Well, the southern kingdom lasted longer than the northern tribes. And you see the dates where the uh, Babylonians came in, and they were used by God to give them a swift kick in the backside to try to get their attention. Well, they didn't respond and so finally in 605 God has them, I'm sorry 586 finally in that area God has them taken away and they're out of the land then a total from the first attacks until uh, 70 years go by and they're allowed to go back after those 70 years they get back into the land, they try to rebuild and they're in the middle of rebuilding the temple, the city and they're stopped right around that period of time that they're there, 457 or so, the king who is now the ruler over this whole area, the king of Medo-Persia, he says you've got to stop building. I've heard that you guys are rebuilding so you can revolt. You have a history of revolution and revolting, so we're going to make you stop until I give further orders. That's when Nehemiah comes on the scene. Nehemiah enters into, this, into the story where about 12 years later he's working for that very king, we think. And he's working for that king, and he's going to ask the king, can I go back and start rebuilding the city once again? You stopped it a dozen years ago. Can I get permission? The king says yes to him, even though he's a trusted advisor, and the king relies upon him. And the king even says, how long are you going to be gone? I want you back here. He gives him permission, and he goes. Nehemiah travels, and that's in the chapter 2 period of the book. He travels, he gets there, and when he gets there, he he investigates the project. He wants to really get it done right. So he spends the first few days doing nothing but resting and getting his thoughts. And he gets the people together and he rallies them to the cause. This is the end of chapter 2. And it says they have a mind to build. So even though it's been kind of devastated for a dozen years, plus there's been a lot of rubble for a lot more longer than that, the people say, they, they get enthused. They get in behind the work and they start doing this project. And the, the end of the story is they build the walls. They get the, so that they have to get the walls in order to do the infrastructure. They've got to get the exterior done first. And so despite the fact they don't have the equipment and they've kind of been used to it for all this time, they rally, they gather, they build without equipment like you and I would be used to. And they do it in record time. And in, in this record time, they're also opposed. They have neighbors who don't want them to rebuild and they're going to give them a hassle. That shows up in chapter 4 and 5 where we're headed for today. And so we get to chapter 3. And chapter 3 is an odd passage. When it's recording, he's not giving story, he's giving details. Now, if you just gloss on it quickly, what he's doing is he's going to give the list of all the people and where they worked. And he basically goes around the city and just says the north gate, the west gate, the south gate, the the, uh, east gate, and he describes who worked where. And he's giving details, and when he's doing that, he's listing off 75 different workers by name and some different groups, whether they be the nobles or they would be the tokoai, or the perfumers or the goldsmiths or the apothecaries. He lists off all these different people. 
And he says they were involved in the work. And so we look at it and say, okay, he gives us not a lot of detail, but a little bit of detail, a lot of names. A lot of names that intimidates us like a genealogy. But there's some important information that's gathered from just looking at what he says in chapter 3 without looking at all the different specific names, but phrases that show up. Phrases that he's talking about all these people, just, just taking the 75 different people. What he gives, gives us is just some type of an idea that he uses all types of people who are willing to work. Nehemiah wasn't biased, wasn't prejudiced. If the perfumers were willing to work on the wall, he needed them, he used them. Uh, if it was male, female, he uses the skilled set, he uses the unskilled. And the idea is that these people need to work together. One, they need to realize ownership of this whole project so that they are putting their best effort forth. And so he basically gets cooperation from a lot of people. It's amazing that he can get all these people to work together on this project and keep them working for 52 days. It's kind of like you feel successful if you get those teenagers to work with you for just several hours and get a project done. And so he does that. And so it's a very, his ability as a leader is outstanding. Something else that he does, and that's coordination. And this is where we stopped last time. Several times the passage says, next to him, by him. And it gives the impression that these people were just staggered through. They were assigned the different portions of the wall. His ability to coordinate people's efforts is really, really outstanding. As a manager, as, a, as an influencer, whether it be a teacher or a businessman, or a you know, supervisor of some sort, or a parent. He has and shows abilities that we should kind of mimic as well. That is that you use the people again, but you cut down any project. You cut it down to size by learning to delegate and involve other people. He tell, shows us that, that the people are informed. They're told exactly what to do, where they're to be working. And so if he's going to get them to work, they need the information. They need the tools. In fact, let's take that a step further, okay? With his skill set, he makes sure that they have the supplies. Remember, he's already had the letters. He's already planned this for a while. What wood would we need? What other things from the other people? And so when people are coming to work, he's going to be able to say, let's go to work. And that's important. The idea that he assigned people to areas that they would have a special interest because of this. If you're building the wall, oh, by the way, you build the wall that's right next to your house. You build a wall where your job is. Well, you would have a special invested interest in where your house lives that that wall that's protecting your family is done right and well, okay? You would, if this was where you're working, you would have a special vested interest to say, I want to make sure this is done well because my job depends upon it. And so he did that. It's a smart move. Smart move in having a lot of the people just work close to where they lived in so many different ways. You know, saving the time on a commute. Save the idea of, okay, they need to eat and taking food. They don't have the same advantages we have food-wise. It would take longer. And so that whole idea of just motivating people by giving them something that would be appealing and apply to their life is really, really amazing. Now, the area that we stopped at last week was this one. And uh, we just touched a little bit on that idea that we just mentioned. But the idea of commending, where he specifically names all these different people and he points out who they are so that you and I, who are hundreds of years later, we learn by name who they were. What does that say about Nehemiah and the people that were working with him? That says volumes. It says volumes to us. It's the, it says that this, as a leader, he got to know the people that he was working with. He got to know and took, took note of where they were working, how they worked. There's going to be several different times he's going to make comment about these people 
people worked in such and such a way or these people didn't work at all. And so he knows what's going on. He's aware and he knows the people by name. Important thought. He personally knew where and how they worked, as I mentioned. He even pointed out that some people worked harder than others. And it wasn't to shame the others, but it's to commend. In our day and age, are we supposed to talk about excellence? Or is it almost a decrying that nobody should be commended for, you know, well, let's give everybody the same grade. Let's make everybody, you know, in a sports team, let's not give a trophy away for the champion. Let's just give a trophy away for participation trophies, okay? And again, there's an idea of commending people, but here he's going to go to that old concept that if you really worked hard, you deserve to be commended for working hard and being rewarded in that regard. And he did it verbally. He commended the individuals that he talks about. Here's an illustration of it. In verse 20, if you looked, it says, Barak the son of Zabbi earnestly repaired the wall. In the Hebrew, it means to burn or to glow. It's the idea that he was doing it enthusiastically and in a very positive way. He didn't see the work as a chore, but as a privilege, as an opportunity to labor to the Lord to help rebuild that city that God had chosen special. And so here he is, he's talking about about those people, and he commends another guy who points out something about this guy who's a nobleman. We look at chapter 14, or verse 14. Okay, it says, The dung gate repaired Malchakiah, the son of Rechab, the ruler of part of, and you can read all the, the rest of it. The guy who works at the dung gate, which we understand what that gate's all about. Okay, it's the outhouse gate. And he says, the guy who took it upon himself to build this gate that would be... Um, a disgusting gate to work on. He's a nobleman. What does that tell you about that guy? Anything? I mean, again, maybe, maybe it's because we're so far removed from nobility back in ancient days. Would nobility dirty their hands, typically? Absolutely not. And so here you got this guy who, by example, he's a nobleman, and he's saying it is a necessity that this gate get built. We all understand the necessity of it. And he says it's a necessity that it get built. I'm going to build it. If there's a job to be done, no job is too demeaning when it's a necessity to get done. What a, what a commendable trait, yes? And there's very few and far of people who think this way anymore that think, well, I will do and I'll volunteer for the lowliest of jobs and the, and the menial of tasks. But he does, okay? And so Nehemiah, he commends individuals who have that spirit of working, who have the attitude that they are willing to do even the disgusting work. And to me, that's just, I look and say, Nehemiah, what a classic illustration of how to work with people, how to lead people, get to know the people, commend the people, acknowledge what they're doing and, and what, what uh, contributions they're making. Let's make some observations. Okay, when it comes to working with people, recruit willing workers. You've got to have willing people, okay, which Nehemiah did. He, and he, part of their willingness is he rallied them to a cause. Practice the art of delegation. Have others. It is so much easier, is it not, at home to do the cleaning yourself rather than trying to get the kids to help. Okay, it's, sometimes it's a chore. But is it beneficial for them to contribute? Is it good for their psyche at times to say, I'm contributing? Yes, absolutely. And even though it takes longer, there's a, there's a training and there's helpfulness that can be done that way. Prepare the work carefully. When you're asking people to come 
And I concluded with this silly illustration. When you go to help somebody move, what do you want them to be ready to do? To move. In other words, have it packed. Right. Be ready. Otherwise, it's frustrating for you and for those who come that it's going to take much longer. It's going to be a waste. You're going to waste a lot of energy if things aren't boxed up. And so that whole idea of if you're going to do a project, make sure we're prepared for the work that's to be done. It's like you volunteer to go to somebody's house and you say, they ask you to help paint. And you get there and you find out they haven't yet even gotten the the supplies, they haven't gotten the paint, they, have no, they aren't prepared for it, they haven't done any of the, the, the preparations or the equipment, and it's like, come on, come on, your time's valuable and so is other people's. If you're asking people to work with you on a project, have the materials ready ahead of time. Practice encouraging coworkers by acknowledging their work, acknowledging their efforts, being thankful, you know, stating, even putting out in public in the sense of a thank you note, it's amazing how we've lost the art of thank you notes in our culture, right? We'll just put something on a text that says, thank you, everybody, okay? And I understand that you know, in modern technology, that seems to be the thing, but doesn't a thank you note mean something anymore to say thank you for your effort? And uh, it's very important. Learn to focus on people, not just a program, which he was involved with getting this building uh, built, but it wasn't just about the building and getting the building. He was thinking of people. And he wasn't just trying to get people done. He was trying to, or a program done, he was trying to get people done. And so he acknowledges the people. He knows the people. He gets involved with the people. Practice complimenting fellow workers. Letting them know you appreciate. Letting, you, letting others know that you appreciate what they've done in their contributions and acknowledging them and making it, making it known. Really, really important stuff. And I know that in modern days, if you did this in some business settings, others would get upset with you because they wouldn't be mentioned. Because we have that mindset that if you mention this person, you've got to mention everybody. Well, let's go back to old truth. Old truth is let's commend people who deserve to be commended. Okay? Let's, let's compliment, let's commend, and let's leave it open. We'll commend anybody and everybody who is making the contributions and provide that type of incentive. And so he's practicing complimenting. To me, there's just a lot of t- tremendous challenges by Nehemiah's example for you to influence other people around you in any type of project, work area, family project that you can look at and say, there's some, a lot of good, good examples to follow. Now what happens is Nehemiah is wrapping up the chapter. And let's just do that. Let's just put a, just real quickly, just a, a, a streamer across the whole chapter. Here's what you've got. It reveals that these people had a mind to work and a heart to work. And so their hearts did what their, or their hands did what their hearts said. So there's a commending, commending part of quality of this chapter that he's saying, here's the people. They had a mind. This is why we got things done. It was their work. It's not, and Nehemiah, and I think this is, this is so important for, for those of you who are in any type of leadership position. Nehemiah doesn't take the credit in chapter 3, does he? For the project getting done. Who does he give the credit to? The people. The people's contributions. Now, did he play a role in it? Absolutely. 
but he, de- he defers the credit by writing about what they did. And so even the best leaders, now here's the, here's the, the rub. Go to verse 5. In verse 5, he is going to even include a negative statement because he's going to be realistic. In chapter 3, verse 5, it says, And next to him the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles put not their necks to the work of the Lord. He is going to point out that not everybody was enthusiastic about giving contributions. There was a group, and it happened to be the Hoi Polloi, that said, we don't work because we're nobles. Okay? Now, the reason I think that part of this is recorded is not just to be negative, but later on in chapters 5, 6, 7, he's going to have a lot of problems with the nobility. And it's going to come back. And so he's setting the stage as he's looking back and he's saying, ever from the very beginning we had some problems with some people and it happened to be those who felt they were above work. And they felt that by inheritance, by uh, bloodline, they didn't have to work. And he's going to point out. And the, 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 the issue, the, the lesson for me is that I don't care who you are, okay, where you're at. Is, is it pretty much a fact of life that if you're doing any major project, there's going to be somebody that may not be on board with you? Okay, do we let that somebody stop us? Do we let that some negative, one person who's negative destroy? You take a classroom of 30 kids. There's probably one who's going to be a negative kid in there. Or on a team, what's that? Only one, yeah, I know. Okay. You get one, one kid on a team who is, oh, we can't win, we can't win. Okay, you and I are so, so uh, geared this way at times that that one loud voice of criticism can all of a sudden outweigh and outsound out all the other positive. And it can be very discouraging, can it not? You've got the one who is critical, the one who is condemning, the one who is attacking. And it's like, oh man, but we forget all the other blessings that are there. We look at the one that's not there, even in people relationships. And so uh, the best of leaders in planning will undoubtedly cover, uh, encounter some problems. In this case, it came from the nobility. I already mentioned that. And don't let those type of naysayers discourage you or defeat you and say, okay, I'm not going to be involved. You work despite those individuals. That's Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah continues. What happens is, chapter 4 continues the saga. Chapter 4, he's going to get in, and he's mentioned that there's a little bit of opposition, but we're working, we're working, working. Chapter 4, he unveils what's happening in the middle of the project, how they were working hard, but they had a lot of problems, and they had a lot of challenges. The challenges came from two different directions. They came from within and they came from without. You had some who were the negative from within, and you had some who were the negative from without. And so he's going to talk about opposition as he goes through chapter 4. Let's read part of it, and then let's uh, do some summary thoughts here. In chapter 4, after he's given all the names of the people who are working, he says, it came to pass that when Sanballat, who we have already heard about, Sanballat, who, is, uh, who was angry when he first showed up in chapter 2 at the very end of the chapter, Sambalat is the beginning of the Samaritans, okay, from north, just north of Jerusalem. But it came to pass that when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he became very angry, took great indignation, and he mocked the Jews. He spake before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, Even that which is, if they build, if a fox were to go up on it, it shall break down the stone wall. 
Hear, O God, this is Nehemiah's response. Hear, O our God, for we are despised and turned, turn their reproach upon their own head and give them for a prey into the land of captivity. Cover not their iniquity. Let not their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So, at the end of the prayer. Built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof. For the people had a mind to work. But it came to pass that when Sambalan and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Amorites and the Ashdodites heard that the wall of Jerusalem's, uh, the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, then they became very angry and conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder the work. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. And Judah said, The strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed, and there is still much rubbish, so that we were not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said, They shall not know, neither see, till we come into the midst of them and slay them, and cause the work to cease. And it came to pass that when the Jews which dwelt by them came, they said to us ten times, from all places whence you shall return unto us, they will be upon you. Therefore set I in the lower places behind the wall and on the higher places. I even set the people after their families with their swords, their spears, their bows. I looked and rose up and said to the nobles and to the rulers and the rest of the people, Be not afraid of them. Remember the Lord which is great and terrible or awesome. And fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your houses. And it came past when our enemies heard that it was known unto us that, and that God had brought their counsel to naught. We returned all of us to the wall every one to his work. And it came to pass from that time forth that half of my servants worked in the work and the other half of them held both the spears, the shields, the bows, the harbogens, and the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. And they which builded on the wall, they that bear the burdens and the, with those that laid it, every one in his hands wrought in the work and with the other hand they held a weapon for the builders. Every one had a sword girded by his side and so he built. And he that sounded the trumpet was by me. And that stopped there. Here's what you got, okay? You got a fact of life. Whenever we attempt anything for the Lord, we're going to face some opposition. The opposition we face is definitely going to arise from where? If we're doing something from the Lord, what is obviously going to be the start of every opposition to what we do for the Lord? It's going to be Satan. It's going to be some way he's going to contrive, he's going to conspire. Now some people don't need Satan to help them to become contrary. But here he says there's going, and we know this, Jesus has stated this, that if we're living for him we're going to face opposition. It's a fact of life. We can't get away from it. And so they're starting to do the work and they're going to have the evil one try to put some opposition. Now back in those days, let's, let's set the scene. What is the work of God? Back in the time of Nehemiah, when we talk in this, in this, this frame mind, when we say the work of God, what are we talking about? It's, it's Israel, right? It's the rebuilding of Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the centerpiece of God's program. So when, if they're opposing Jerusalem and the rebuilding of Jerusalem, they're opposing, at that time period, they're opposing who? God. Because this is God's program, Jerusalem being built. That was the shining place. This is the spot in the world where the temple was. This is the spot in the world that's supposed to be the lighthouse of the gospel forever and wherever. Okay, today we live in a different era. We live in a different time. The work of God isn't necessarily the centerpiece of Israel, but the work of God is centralized in local churches. 
Okay, we're in that age, we're in the church age. But in the Old Testament, the centerpiece of God's work is Jerusalem. And so with this whole story, when he says, oh God, turn your wrath upon them, understand he's in that time period that if you oppose the plan of God, you are also opposing Jerusalem. If you oppose Jerusalem, you're opposing the plan of God. They go hand in hand. And so that's very important that we keep that in mind in the context. And so what happens is these people are there and they're battling. It's, they're going to battle a superior enemy. And if they're not aware of what's happening, they're going to have trouble. The Poles, World War II. The Poles decided to, when they were first invaded by the German army, they decided that they were going to resist the invasion. Okay, they sent out their very best part of their army. They sent out the cavalry against panzer divisions of tanks. Who's going to win the battle? Okay, the Germans, why? Superior weaponry, right? Okay, and it was a slaughter. And even though, and the, the story of this battle is they talk about how with nobility and with bravado, they drew their swords on the horseback and they charged the tanks. Well, you and I could say right away at the beginning, any of us who don't have military minds, we could look at that and say, who's going to win that battle? And that's an easy one. That's a no-brainer. Well, here's the Jews building. And if they don't understand their enemies, and Nehemiah has to help them to understand their enemies are well-equipped, and they have superior weapons. And we need to be able to combat and resist with the right type of weapons to match them. And that's what chapters 4 and 5 are about. It's what do we do when opposition strikes? Do we, do we go to superior weapons or we do the ancient weapons? And so Nehemiah is going to be wise enough that what happens, he realizes how I'm supposed to fight this enemy and what weapons I use. And he will not use the weapons of flesh that are coming against him, but he's going to use spiritual weapons. Those same weapons that we should be using today in the attacks that happen. Okay, here's the attacks. Let's lay them out in three cents. There, you could have more. This, I'm, I'm picking it. Okay, here's three different major attacks that come. The first major attack that comes is in the form of mockery. It comes in the form of mockery. They're going to mock him. They're going to, they're going to ridicule. They're going to belittle. Because when people get mocked, can it wear you down? Okay, sticks and stones will break my bones, but is that really true? No. Do the names hurt us? Does the ridicule? Okay, let, let's go back to our childhood. Did any of you get called names when you were a child? You know, you got called names for the way you looked. I, I knew my, the, the thing that I always got was four eyes. To the point that I, being, being a kid and having the other kids mock, you know, nobody wanted four eyes on their team. So my stupid reaction was to take my glasses off. Okay. Of what good could I be to a team without my glasses? It just got worse. But because of the name calling... It hurt. Okay, you've been there. You've done that, yes? People mock. They're calling them names. Will they're calling their names? And this isn't, this isn't anything new. Okay, the name calling and the attacks breaks down confidence. Notice how the attacks come, okay, and where they come from. The people who are doing the name callings, we have Samballat the Horonite, who I already said is the beginning of what we'll call the Samaritans later on. He is mentioned in chapter 2 already. He has said, it is already stated by Nehemiah that when Nehemiah showed up, he didn't like it. Because, 
Okay? Jerusalem used to be the capital. Everybody around Jerusalem, even the other non-Jewish tribes, they had to kowtow to Jerusalem because the Jews were in charge. Now that Jerusalem's been defeated, all these little crony, you know, countryside leaders, now all of a sudden they can rise to the top and they can exercise their own autonomy, their own authority, and they can intimidate the Jews and get back at them. If Jerusalem gets rebuilt and becomes the hub of the area, what happens to the small little fiefdom of Samballat? It's going to disappear. Samballat is all about worrying about Samballat, okay, and his power isn't it, isn't it amazing that in the Old Testament era there were people who had power who were more interested in keeping their power? Isn't that amazing? That people, that people, in, that people in elected to office would be only concerned about keeping themselves elected? That's Sam Ballot, okay? That's an amazing thought that people would think that way. Okay, surprise. And so then you have his brothers, okay? Now, I don't know who the brothers refers to. Are, is he talking about physical brothers or brothers in kindred mind and thought? Probably that. Tobiah the Ammonite, Geshem the Arab, and the army of Samaria. So he's going to mock and he's going to say things in front of these people. In fact, when he's saying it, it says that in the beginning of verse chapter 4, he's saying it, but Tobiah is there as well and he's going to chime in. So apparently there's a whole group of them. They're standing, they're watching you build on the walls and they're standing over here and going, nah, 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 dumb work that you're doing. Okay, and they're mocking him. They're criticizing him. Why'd they do it? It's stated twice in the text. That they were opposed to the building program in the sense that they got angry. They got mad. They were filled with wrath, it says. Wrath. It's an old English word. And so they're very upset that they're building because it's threatening their power base. And so these guys get involved with it. And they say certain things. And if we dissect just slightly, and again, I think it's all related and not every phrase necessarily has a cogent thought that is unique to it, but basically putting them together and looking at the phrases, they do this kind of thing. These are feeble Jews that are doing this. The attack on these feeble Jews, those who are weak. It's the same word that comes out when Goliath is mocking the Jewish army that you are feeble, that none of you have any, any guts, that you don't have that, what it's needed to be able to stand. So he's mocking the characteristic, the determination of the people. And it's, it's that phrase like, will they restore? He asks the question, you know, what, and remember, there's goldsmiths, there's apothecaries, there are perfumers, they're doing the building. What are they going to do? What, you know, what kind of wall are they going to be building? Will they sacrifice? In other words, is they, do they think that even if they pray this thing up, it's going to work? You know, what value is the sacrifice? What value is the prayer in this project? You've got to have good mortar, not just prayers. Can they finish it in a day? Okay, their thought is, it's going to take you a lot longer, guys, than what you think. And the reality is, any renovation project we attempt does take longer than what we think, okay? And so we have to be wise in that regard. But are they able to revive the stones out of the rubble? You know, what you're trying to do is impossible. It's too hard. You can't do it. It can't be done. Have you ever heard people say it? Have you ever heard people say, it just can't be done? It can't be done. And what does that say to your spirit? Okay, I'm going to do it. <laughs> okay. Because you're a stubborn person? Yes. Yes. Is there, a, is there a time that as Christians we should be stubborn and it's a good stubbornness? Yes, yes, okay. Uh, I remember the first year we were in this church. 
back in 1979. The very first time we, we were getting the church underway and getting it going. And I remember meeting with a few other preachers here in town that invited us to a, to a meal. And they said, you know, what do you, what do you, they called us boys, okay? We were young. We were in our 20s. They said, what are you boys trying to do here in Lebanon? We're trying to build a church. Yeah. And they say, it can't be done. It can't be done. It's just, it, it doesn't work in Lebanon, you can't build churches. And it's like, what are you guys doing here then? You know, you, you've been here. It was a, I know it was disrespectful as one of them told me. How dare you speak to it? Well, it was an honest question. If you can't build a church in this area, then what are you guys doing here who have been here for 20 years? Okay? You know, and so it was, it was not an encouraging fellowship. Okay? It's supposed to be one of those pastor's luncheons that builds up the faith. And it was like, well, that didn't build anybody up. Okay? Other than just tell us, you know, we're dumb. We're never going to get it done. The people in Lebanon are too stubborn. They're too, they're too Pennsylvania Dutch. You know, you name it, we heard it about how you can't get a church started in Lebanon. And we walked away from that lunch, that breakfast. It was a, it was a um, what do you call it, in between lunch and breakfast. It was a brunch, thank you. Uh, and I remember the place. I remember walking out of the facility. And we got in the car and I looked at my brother and he looked at me and said, what are we doing here? And we drove away both silent and finally he just spoke up. He says, because we think God wants us here. We believe God wants us here. And it was like, okay, that's good enough for me. You know, if you're staying, I'm staying. And so it was just one of those deals that you run into people that just are negative. And, uh, you know, just, whew, you got the fox, could knock it down. Whatever you're going to do, your work is pathetic. Okay? By the way, should we be the people that ever say this to individuals trying to do something for the Lord? No, no, no. And so be careful. These are strong statements. They were made public enough that Tobiah is standing there and they, it seems to me, if we read verses 2 and 3, it seems they're jeering this at the people. They're, they're throwing this out at the people is the sense that I have from the text, is that they're making these comments. And so let's, let's just make some sad facts about mockery. When you determine to serve God in some way, there will be opposition. That's, that's a fact. Let's make another fact. Some people will even get angry over your attempts to do right for God. Isn't that an amazing thought? Some people will get angry when you try to do right for God. Now, some of you experienced that. You got saved. You tried to move forward for the Lord. And some of your relatives gave you a hard time because you were trying to build a marriage. You were trying to build uh, for your kids, train them in the Word of God. And others were saying, how dare you train those kids and give them so much Bible. And you're going, what's wrong with giving my kids Bible? What's wrong with not being an alcoholic? What's wrong with not being, you know, involved with garbage stuff? And so some people will do that. They'll get angry. Other, often such people will gang up with others to increase the pressure and opposition to quit. And as well, they will often become very critical and cruel in their comments. And some of you have been there. You know what I'm talking about. You had relatives, friends, co-workers that mocked your attempts to serve the Lord, to follow the Lord when you got baptized or when you said, I'm going to start doing something in my family and going forward. And what really is irritating and what's really frustrating is when it comes from Christians. When Christians around you start giving you a hard time for wanting to be a witness, wanting to read your Bible regularly. When they give you a hard time for 
doing family time with your kids and memorizing Scripture or training your kids. Or you say, I'm going to get involved, and I'm going to really get involved in a church and teach, and they give you a hard time. Wow. Wow. He says, okay, that's going to happen. These efforts, they fail. If they fail initially, they're going to intensify in their attack, which they did. They gave mockery, first of all. Then they moved to another level of attack. The second level attack that we're going to be talking about is, well, let me, let me keep with my notes a little bit better. I'm supposed to, I forgot this section. How does Nehemiah respond to mockery? He doesn't mock back. This is critical. How to respond when people are attacking you. Don't attack back. Okay? Immediately, Nehemiah's response is prayer, not panic. Okay? He goes to prayer. He doesn't pout. He doesn't give up. He immediately goes into the prayer mode. And then he and the people go back to work. What do you do when people are criticizing you? Keep doing what you're doing. If it's God's work. Okay? Keep doing it. Go to prayer. Leave it with the Lord. And by the way, his prayer is an imprecatory prayer. Okay? Isn't appropriate for him to pray an imprecatory prayer. Back in those days it was. Okay? Because they're opposing God's program. We already read that prayer where he says, God, here he says in verse 4, turn it upon them. Don't. This is, what they're doing is iniquity. Cover it not. You know, let them reap what they sow. They're giving out all kinds of blasphemy. Let it turn on their head. And so he goes back to work. When you're mocked, when you're criticized, don't retaliate. Don't mock back. When you're attacked and criticized, go to prayer and then keep with the work. Let your testimony be your response that we can build a work for God no matter what. Okay, the opposition increases in the form of threats. Now it's more than just mockery. Now it's physical threats. It's the attacks that take place. These are severe in nature. They're going to come and they're going to fight against Jerusalem that we already read in verses 6 and 9. They say we're going to come, we're going to mix in with them, and we're going to kill them. We're going to blend in at sometimes, and we're going to attack. The, the alliance that is formed, and this is important for your background information. If you look, and we already read... Or in verse 7, it tells you the different groups of people. Here's what you need to know is if you were to lay this out. This Samballot and the Samaritans are north of the city. The Arabs are south of the city. The Tobiah and the Ammonites are west of the city. The Ashdodites, who are ancient Philistia or Philistines, they're east of the city. What does that mean about the work of God and the people of God doing the work? They're totally surrounded. They're totally surrounded by opposition. There is no way out. God doesn't have, a, doesn't have a path through that they can escape. They're there. They're put there. There's opposition. Every which way they turn, it's going to seem like the enemy has increased and they don't have a chance. And so he, the information that he gives you is trying to set up a scene that Nehemiah is saying, this almost looks like it's insurmountable. Like there's no way out of this and I don't know what we're going to do. Isn't that amazing how God lets us get in situations that look like there's no way out? Why does he do that? Why does he put us in spots that we look and say it's an impossibility? So we look to him. So we realize that when things change, it's not us, it's him. It's his work. Okay. And so what happens after that is even more threats. The threats increase. They, this is where they say, okay, we're going to sneak in, we're going to kill them when they're not looking. And so what, oops, let me back up. So what happens is they're going to stop the work by killing off the Jews. I guess that would work. If you kill all the people, they're not going to work. 
And so they make these a very blatant threat. The questions that we have is what did the Jews do? How does Nehemiah respond to these intensified section uh, attacks? He prays and this time verse 8 gives an indication our prayer where he says um, as he goes on they conspired all of them uh, in verse 9 I should have down nevertheless we made our prayer unto our God the people join in prayer where did the people get the idea that when there's a problem they should run to prayer where did they get that from Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Three times in the book it talks about Nehemiah doing it. It's starting to rub off. Nehemiah is showing them that when the problems arise, here's where we go. We run to God first and foremost. Then what he does is he sets up protection for them. So they go to prayer and they set up protection. They don't attack back but they set up a defense system. They are doing what Ephesians tells us to do. Stand fast. Steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, 1 Corinthians says. And so, what he's going to do is sets up some form of protection. But let, before we get into that, let's just hit the third one, then stop. The third area of attack, and I'm not sure if it's the most deadly or not, it's discouragement. It's this attack comes from within. The people get discouraged. It comes, as we read through the story, and if we highlight, it comes where he says in verse 6, we were halfway in building the wall. Why is it when you're halfway through a project, it all of a sudden gets most discouraging? It's hard to see the finish. Because all you see is the work and how much is left to do. Isn't this the case? You're doing a renovation project and when you're halfway through you don't see everything that you've done. You see all that is that is left to do. Okay? You're halfway through the car payment. Why is it no more three? It's, what, what has vanished from the car? The newness, the smell. You know, now you're starting to do more of the repairs. Or starting to, and halfway through you're going... It's not I'm, I've owned the car halfway, it's I still don't own it, I still own half of it. Why is it when you're raising your kids, halfway through the project, you want to sell them off? Okay? <laughs> well, actually, you'd give them away. Okay. okay. Why is it? Because does it get a little bit tougher sometimes where you say, it's easy to look and say, oh, we, you don't look at all that you've accomplished, you look at all that's left to be done in what short time you have. You know, yeah, okay, we've, we've got where they're chewing with their mouth shut for the most of the time. But now that's not the big issue. The big issue is what comes out of their mouth when they're talking. Not when they're chewing. You know, and it gets, it gets, it, that's life. It gets harder when we reach the half point. And these people, it even says their strength is failing them. Because they're working straight for 52 days. That means how many days have they worked straight? If they're halfway through. This isn't real tough math. Okay. Basically three and a half weeks without a day off. How would you feel? You're getting tired. You're going to get tired. And you're working hard. And even though you've worked hard, you look around and look at what the phrase is. The phrase is, there is still much what? He says there's much rubbish. It's like we've worked this hard and I don't think we've made a dent in this project. Have you ever tried one of those? You go in and you say, I've done so much, but it looks like I've done nothing. 
and you feel like, oh man, now you're discouraged and there's still much rubble and you want to give up. And so all of a sudden in chapter, chapter 4, get down to verse 10, and the people, it says, Judah said this. This is, the, this is the Jew saying, the strength of the bearers of the burdens is decayed. There is much rubbish. We're not able to build the wall. They're the ones that are coming to the conclusion. We can't do it anymore. We can't do it. And all of a sudden, when things start happening where you feel tired, do the fears of outside attacks become bigger? Yes or no? When you're tired, does opposition sound louder? Oh yeah. Does it seem a bigger problem when when you're just at this point, you're starting to get discouraged, and no matter what's said, no matter what happens, it becomes the, the, the little molehill becomes the mountain. That's where they're at. How does Nehemiah turn it around when he is, oh, by the way, should we add to it this one, one more statement and I stop? I read through, where is it that the Jew, look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. Their friends, their allies came to him and said how many times? You're in trouble. You're in trouble. You're in trouble. You're going to get killed. What does it say? Did I give you the right passage? Chapter 4. What does it say about the Jews coming and talking to them and saying that they're going to come and get you? How many times did they say this? Ten times. You're tired, you're defeated, and what happens? Your spouse comes in and says, you can't do it, 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 you can't do it. I'm only up to what, six times? You want to punch them. Okay, that's where they're at. Let's pick up from there next week.